next threat could be bacterial. And so if you go down too far with specific technologies, you end up with something that's really good for a crisis and then the crisis passes. And, you know, let's be honest, government and industry for that matter does what they do. And three to five years later, they go, why are we spending all this money on this old thing? And then that gets phased out and then you lose some preparedness. I'm John Manis, an investor at Basis Set Ventures, an early-stage venture capital fund investing in founders, transforming the way people work across all parts of the economy, from factories to offices. This is episode two of Future Proof. Today, we're talking with Ari Schuler, the creator and former head of the innovation team inside of U.S. Customs and Border Protection, and the current VP of Emerging Markets at Dayon, about COVID-19, customs, and global trade. COVID-19 threw supply chains into chaos long before news of the pandemic was top of mind for most Americans. Disruptions that started in China are showing signs of easing while factories close down in the US and non-essential commerce and travel winds down. We're here to understand what's been going on behind the scenes as the government pushes to get PPE into the hands of doctors and nurses and to try to parse apart the ways that US customs was and was not designed for threats like COVID-19. Along the way, we'll touch on ways technology can bolster our response to the next pandemic. Silicon Valley's had to get up to speed on customs and trade really fast in the last few weeks. Talk of the town at board meetings back in January was supply chain disruptions in China. Took about six weeks to get here, uh, but I saw a stat yesterday showing Monday's TSA inspections were down to about 330,000 from 2.4 million in the previous year. From the sidelines, would you say CBP was ready for something like this? There have been several past pandemics, as you know, most recently Ebola, um, but also SARS and MERS. You know, the agency has gone through this before. I, I would say that while there's a playbook that everyone knows how to run through, the challenge with pandemics, as everyone's finding out in the world, is that you just never know how bad it's going to be. Is it going to be a regional issue? Is it going to be a global issue? If it's global, how disruptive is it? And this has clearly been more disruptive than anything in recent history. Uh, and so I think no one was going to come and say, hey, we did a really great job based on where we thought it would go. Um, but did they start cold? Absolutely not. I know everyone there has been working around the clock, um, whether it's Border Patrol, OFO, Air and Marine, trade specialists, to try to keep things as steady and normal as possible. Well, Ari, in the past, you've told me that CBP balances security, contraband, and, and trade facilitation priorities. How do you think that COVID-19 might reshuffle resource allocation to those, those three priorities? One of the false trade-offs, and I think you know this, is that you can't do both security and facilitation at the same time. In fact, the more you can facilitate, the more time you have uh, to focus on security. So if I know someone's a trusted trader, I have very, very high confidence in that. Uh, I can spend less resources checking because I know they're trusted. uh, And then that gives me more resources to focus elsewhere. So I think this will create some new challenges uh, that will require new programs, new technology, new policies to help build in health security as part of that. Um, But I think what's really interesting, and maybe the two of us can dive into a bit, um, is how CBP has built what I would call a really powerful platform for risk analysis, whether that's for people coming into the country or for cargo coming into the country. Uh, And that's enabled them to be very dynamic. Now, not perfect by any stretch. Um, You know, you're certainly seeing an adaption period now, uh, but something that I think they'll be able to build upon coming out of this crisis and even during this crisis. Tell us a little bit about that. Is that something that opens up communication with other countries during a time like this or other government agencies? Right. So as you know, trade is about as multifaceted as you get, right? You have all these different countries um, and you've got those bilateral relationships. Then you have all the partner government agencies, which is you know government jargon for agencies that might have 
uh, a say in something. So for pharmaceuticals, it's the FDA, um, but it's even things like fish and wildlife for you know certain products. And I think, like I said, there's 50 plus of those. Um, so CBP is really good at building those coalitions. But taking a step back, uh, CBP has built what I would call one of the best risk analysis capabilities of any country in the world coming out of 9-11. Uh, they call it a layered approach, um, you know, which I think is fair because it starts with the moment that someone wants to ship something. So there's a lot of regulatory uh, filing that goes in, lots of data that CBP collects on any import or export. And this immediately feeds into their risk analysis engines, which are extremely complex uh, in a good way, extremely powerful, uh, staffed by some of the best people, I think, in the government. So that's looking at all sorts of different things, trying to flag you know, what might be good, what might be bad. And an example might be very simply, you know, we may have an address that we know a lot of drugs have been shipped from this address. So if something comes from there, we're probably going to take a look at that uh, cargo and we're going to flag it for later inspection. Then, and this depends on, on exactly where the cargo is coming from, there's in some cases even some screenings that occur before it even leaves the country coming into America. So, for example, an air cargo, a lot of that is screened for potential explosives coming out of some past aviation threats. So, again, another layer before those goods have even left to enter the U.S., once it gets to the U.S., then there's a variety of different tools. Uh, one term for it is non-intrusive inspection. So these are high-powered X-ray type machines that can X-ray vehicles, they can X-ray cargo containers, you name it, uh, to look for anomalies, right? What could be in there that doesn't look like what it should be? Uh, maybe it doesn't match what was declared. And then if there's an anomaly, of course, a physical inspection can, can be created. So you build all that together and you have a very, very robust system. Uh, and right now it does everything, like you said, from narcotics to agricultural pests. Uh, and so I think coming out of this, it's very, very likely we will see new requirements, whether it's new data forms uh, for the analytics side of things uh, to help understand provenance and help understand the health implications of a product uh, to actual technologies that are physically used to screen something and see if that's safe or not. Well, so how do we even think about that in the context of a disease where at least some research shows that COVID is able to maintain infectivity on surfaces for uh, a number of days? So how, how would CBP think about intercepting something like that, and what data would contribute to discovery in that case? Right. So when something is shipped, you know where it's coming from. So say we have a country that we have some concerns about what's coming in. Um, you could say anything coming from that country, you know, say the data plays out that COVID doesn't stay alive past three days. And I'm just using that as an example here, of course. Um, you know, I think we'll get much better science once once this is the imminent crisis is over. You could then say, hey, for the next two months until we are, are convinced that country is safe and free, uh, all goods coming through have a three-day holding period. Uh, and that might be, you know, maybe you'll have special containment areas that you offload in the port. Um, maybe you just keep it on the ship. That's not preferred. The shipping operators don't like that. Um, maybe you find a way to certify, you know, bonded areas in the place where it ships from that, hey, it, it sat there before being loaded onto a plane. So I think there's some flexibilities you could build into the system there. Uh, obviously, people aren't going to like that. They like having their goods uh, come just in time. You like it when you order stuff off Amazon and it immediately comes to you. Uh, but I think when you have health crises, you understand that some of that has to give. Is that happening today or would it take more infrastructure to get there? Uh, to my knowledge, that's not happening today. I think, uh, as I was saying, until there's really good science, I don't think anyone wants to pull the trigger on, on those sorts of uh, solutions. And I know that you uh, have been out of CBP for some time now, but the president last week was going back and forth on clarifying whether to close cargo between the EU and the United States. It doesn't seem like we're on a path to having cargo cut off. Do you think that there's a threshold where something like that might happen? I, I think it's going to really come down to 
is it safe? And I think that's a really hard call to make. I think you're seeing a very aggressive national debate on, on where that threshold is. I think with cargo, the advantage is you have less people being involved, right? You have a couple of pilots as opposed to a plane full of passengers. Those are hard, you know, national security, presidential level decisions. Um, if someone was foolish enough to make me in charge, potentially you have to look at, does a country have control over the outbreak or, and is there confidence in their testing and their epidemiology? And I think if you lost a lot of confidence in that, and I don't think any country is really at that point yet. I think a lot of countries are struggling. But if you really saw something go off the deep end or you just didn't trust the data coming out of a country, you might have to make that decision. But, you know, there's a lot of challenges in shipping, as you know. There's a lot of games you can play. Things can be reshipped. You can be sent to a third country and then snuck in that way. Um, you know, it, it's a tricky situation. I want to take a step back and think a little bit about CBP priorities on the technology side leading up to this current COVID crisis. What were the priorities and how do you think that those priorities have changed, particularly from an innovation perspective? When I left, uh, we were in the midst of the opioid uh, crisis and we still, you know, it's still ongoing, right? Uh, fortunately, it, it's abated a little bit, but that is that is another one that, that is just critical to our public health and, and something that CBP was playing a key role in. And as an example, we actually led uh, an opioid detection challenge to help find opioids in the male environment. And we were looking for all new technologies um, of all sorts, right? Everything from things that could look at letters to full packages to data analytics behind them uh, to identify those technologies. You know, broadly and, and crudely, uh, but I think accurately, CEP is always looking for things that can better segment the bad from the good uh, with that emphasis on, you know, you don't want false positives, right? Every single false positive that you go, hey, we think that package there um, is, you know, potentially has bad stuff, then a human has to open it. And just to give you context, just looking at mail. Um, there are, I think, around, I want to say it's almost 2 million packages a day coming into the U.S., you know, when, when uh, trade was as it is. And then there's about 70,000 cargo containers a day. Um, it doesn't take a very high false positive rate to just create a crippling amount of workflow. And if you can't trust the technology, it won't get used by operators. So always looking for those sorts of technologies, um, a lot of investment on the data analytics side, and then a lot of investment on the hardware side about things that can actually be deployed in that hands-on uh, sense, like I was talking about, you know, once you say, hey, this 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 container might be suspect, you know, how can you get better data without having to unpack the whole thing? Because that's very labor intensive. How much of that technology is specific to COVID-19? I know that things like antimicrobial services and thermal cameras, for example, have become hot commodities in the last few weeks for companies. Do you think that it's it's things like that that are specific that are ultimately going to become priorities for CDP? Or do you think it comes down to better communication, better traceability, better flexibility around interventions? So there's a lot of ways uh, to approach challenges like this. And I think you want a combination um, because anytime you have better data and better traceability, you're creating a system that's very flexible. So the challenge, as you know, uh, you know COVID-19 is a coronavirus. Um, it's got certain aspects. A lot of things are attuned to it. Um, you know, the next threat could be bacterial. And so if you go down too far with specific technologies, you end up with something that's really good for a crisis and then the crisis passes. And, you know, let's be honest, government and industry, for that matter, does what they do. And three to five years later, they go, why are we spending all this money on this old thing? You know, and then that gets phased out and then you lose some preparedness. So I think you, of course, probably this is, again, me, not CBP. You know, I think you 80% want things that are broadly applicable for all hazards uh, that build, you know, a lot of robustness across the entire system. And a lot of that is data and provenance and trust. 
Uh, and then you want to spend about 20% on more attuned threats. Um, but even then, you know, you want things that are flexible. Uh, to go back to that opioid challenge, one of the big things we talked about is we wanted technologies that weren't just tied to opioids and could be tied to any synthetic drug or any narcotic. Because we've seen, you know, the drug of choice that gets popular changes. And so if you go all in on opioids, you know, in that case, you've got a thinking adversary, you've got, you know, uh, criminal organizations, they'll just switch to something else. The second they realize, oh, well, opioids can be detected, we'll use something you can't detect. Um, Mother Nature doesn't quite do it the same thinking way. uh, But as we see in in this whole coronavirus uh, pandemic, Mother Nature is crafty in her own way. uh, And so you've got to make sure you're ready to adapt to any threat. The hot topic of the last few weeks has been speeding up the importing of PPE. I know that this has gotten complicated with a number of different government agencies involved in regulating PPE, including the FDA. How should we be thinking about this kind of interagency communication and the role that agencies have to play in designating what gets to come in and out of the United States? It started rough. I think it's getting better. Um, you have a lot of process in place. And sometimes uh, having done this in the interagency, you know, you've got to figure out which of that process is there for a good reason and which of it has accumulated during peacetime. Um, And so the good news uh, is that all these partner government agencies, there's a process for them to talk to each other. Everyone knows how to get everyone on the line. I was talking to some of my friends still in the agency. They were on a multi-stakeholder call recently. They were resolving something. They did it quickly in a way that you expect your government. But you kind of have to go through those motions. And I think you're seeing this at really every level of government of shaking off the cobwebs and making sure that things are functioning as they should be uh, that meets the current crisis and you're not kind of defaulting to what you did you know, when there wasn't anything going on that was super urgent. You mentioned that the CBP has learned a lot from previous crises. I know 9-11 is probably one of the most prominent and top of mind for most of us. What lessons were learned throughout that crisis that are informing uh, responses to this one? Uh, data, 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 right? So, so prior to 9-11, a lot of the data that's collected on uh, travelers coming to the U.S. simply didn't exist. And so you could not, you know, take a look at that and say, are these people that we've encountered before and we know are bad actors in some way? When it came to 9-11, folks like that were able to get in. Uh, and then it became a race of law enforcement and intelligence agencies against the bad guys doing bad things. And, you know, we lost. Coming out of 9-11, we built, as I was talking a bit on the custom side, also on the people side, Uh, these regulatory systems to collect data, to make sure that all the different government holdings are talking to each other so that if we've ever encountered someone who's done something that other agencies need to know about, that information is available. And I think we've done uh, a really good job. There's always room for improvement, but I I truly believe it's one of the the best things that's come out of post 9-11 in terms of making sure that gap was closed. And you're seeing it get better and better with biometrics that CPP is rolling out for entry and exit that closes another potential gap. It's been a really great focus. How do you stay ahead of, uh, of each crisis? You mentioned the next crisis could be bacterial in nature, for example, or potentially even different than that. Founders already struggle with the amount of information that they need to declare around importing and exporting goods, particularly given the amount of data that each one of the agencies needs in order to be able to make uh, decisions around safety for goods that are being imported. How do we make sure that we're not collecting too much data, that we're actually collecting the right data? It's a great question. And I think that, and I hope, because I'm an eternal optimist coming out of this, that will be one of many things uh, that everyone looks at, right? You you get that peacetime accumulation, like I was talking about before, where, hey, this bad thing happened once, uh, but it only happened once. So let's just add another data collection and and it kind of stacks on each other, uh, you know, for good reason. But to your point, eventually gets to a point where uh, particularly a small business, whether they're a startup or, you know, just mom and pop, they're looking at this and they're saying, how the heck do I do this? Um, so I think that there, there needs to be a good conversation, you know, post-COVID, post-recovery 
of, all right, let's look at this system. What are we trying to do? You know, what data do we need? And then what technology is out there uh, that can maybe close some of those gaps and make this a more seamless experience? Um, and I think that happens through a, a really good dialogue between government and industry. And I think this, this tends to actually go pretty well. Um, it happens through the Commercial Operations Advisory Committee, uh, which is a government, uh, an industry advisory group to CBP called the COAC. Uh, and they actually are continuing to meet even through this pandemic virtually um, to keep that communication going. So I think CBP has to continue to do what they've done, which is really look hard uh, it, it, with those government agencies of what they need. What about lessons that can be learned from other countries? Have you seen anything compelling from other countries on, a, on an import-export management side? We're witnessing some of the largest uh, worldwide A-B testing of solutions uh, that's ever happened in human history. And because we live in an era of uh, generally free information being transferred in the Internet, uh, that information can be shared rapidly. And so we're going to figure out, I think, over the next couple of weeks, and you're already seeing examples of this, you know, like with 3D printing of ventilator pieces and, and just some incredible innovation designed to save people's lives. I think you're going to see that on the custom side, maybe not as fast. Um, and you'll start being able to roll it out. I think the devil's in the details, though, and you're an expert on this as well, is not conflating policy problems with technology problems. And, and as we started in this conversation, there are a few things that are as complex as international shipping because you have a bevy of different stakeholders. Um, you have a lot of countries. You have transshipment. You have you know pieces of one thing going to another country to be a subassembly to go to another country for a final assembly. Um, the sophistication of the customs agencies of each of those countries may not be equal. So you might have very critical parts coming from a country that maybe doesn't have as developed a custom system. So you can't always roll out you know, a whiz-bang uh, technology solution to all the parties involved um, without a lot of policy wrangling and a lot of diplomacy. And I think that's where a lot of founders get appropriately frustrated. Um, but it's been, you know, it's part of the customs fabric, unfortunately. So if you were recommending ideas to a founder today, what would be the top ideas that you would ask them to start working on that would be helpful for CBP and potentially also corporates that are working with CBP on managing imports and exports? You know, just to give you an example of how complex things are, um, one of the really big gaps in international shipping is we talked about how there's that advanced electronic information that comes into cargo coming into the U.S. Well, it turns out that that doesn't happen in mail. It's gotten a lot better. Uh, there is a lot of advanced information in mail now, but it wasn't until I think it was 2010 or 2011 that the Universal Postal Union even mandated that countries had to do that. And even today, it's not 100% adoption. That's, you know, digitization of mail and sending that data. That's very, very basic, right? Any Silicon Valley person would be like, are you kidding me? Um, you know, but that's the sort of environment you're working in. So, so founders have to really, I think, lead with understanding the challenges uh, and then track tackling the solution instead of, you know, what can sometimes be the more Silicon Valley uh, approach of, hey, here's a great idea. It might step on some regulatory toes, but we're just going to do this anyway and we'll kind of sort out the implications later. That works in a lot of industries. Um, you know, I think you could see you see that in some of the uh, vacation rentals and ride sharing. Uh, I think they would argue took that approach. It just doesn't work in customs. You we will be fined out of existence. You'll be unable to import uh, and you'll run out of venture money before ever securing customers. It's just much harder to disrupt the way Silicon Valley likes to disrupt things. And what about companies that maybe aren't working in customs specifically, but have hardware supply chains around the globe in countries that are hotspots right now for this crisis? What type of advice would you give them for working with CBP and potentially other uh, agencies in other countries mitigating those supply chain risks? 
So I think we're going to have a really interesting, you know, worldwide societal question after all this, which is for years and years and years uh, in pursuit of profit, which is a good thing, right? That's what business does. Uh, we have squeezed a lot of robustness out of the supply chain uh, system across the world. Uh, the result has been greater profits. Um, but I think all of that fragility has been exposed with an event that is not a black swan. This is a white swan. You know, pandemics are well known. Um, a lot of groups have been talking about the threat. We've seen them happen, you know, multiple times over the past decades. There's no surprises here, right? Now, they've never been this bad, but this was a predictable event. And so the question is going to be, is everyone willing to eat some of that profit to invest in resiliency and robustness? Or, you know, a year from now, are we going to go, well, that was really awful. Let's hope it doesn't happen again. And if we do that, uh, I think we're all courting disaster. Um, but if we take a step back and go, you know what, this is a problem. We have to better understand the supply chain. We have to build robustness into it. Then it becomes much more interesting and much more meaningful. And it'll become a true public-private partnership of making, I think, the world better. Uh, and I'm really hoping that is uh, one of the, the ways that things get better coming out of this. Uh, but again, I'm an optimist. Do you think that's just as accessible for earlier stage companies as it is for larger corporations? So I think it's going to have to be, right? I mean, I think if if your goal is to have a robust supply chain, it's going to be kind of like cybersecurity, right? It's a cost that you're just going to have to bear. And I think initially it'll probably be pretty costly for everyone. Um, but hopefully as the market does what it does, you'll start building in robustness efficiently. Uh, I think then it will become something that is more accessible for startups uh, you know, that are seeking to be in this space. Um, but initially, I think you're right. It's going to be it's going to be tough. It's going to be painful for a lot of folks, and it's going to require some reorienting. So the last thing I want to touch on is around labor. Uh, CBP is a is a massive employer. Um, how do you think about the labor risk given coronavirus, and what types of technologies can assist CBP in doing in doing their work more efficiently? Part of me thinks that, you know, robotics still isn't there yet. Uh, you know, I think it will get there, but, you know, maybe this will be something that accelerates it because it, it helps minimize human exposure. Um, I think it will be interesting to see if there are investments made in decontamination, in hygiene, in PPE. Um, you know, I, I heard something that I, I thought was very insightful, and, and I think perhaps one of the biggest areas we'll see some investment going forward uh, and, frankly, some changes in a uh, you know, kind of like after 9-11, there were a lot of changes to how security was, shoes off, belts off, et cetera. You know, I think likely hygiene and cleanliness of, you know, travel and hospitality of, you know, a lot of different sectors may become something that, you know, used to just be something like, yeah, they vacuum the plane when you're done. Um, you may start seeing real investment in there and then a lot of investment opportunities. People figure out, OK, how do we make this a more technological process? How do we ensure the job got done correctly? You know, and it wasn't just, you know, a bunch of cleaning theater. Um, I think you'll start seeing some of that. Um, but again, that's going to assume that this sticks in everyone's mind as, wow, this was really bad and we need to pay attention to, to the impact of a global economy and all the things that make uh, diseases spread and not just a, hey, one year later, gosh, that was awful. Let's hope it never happens again. Thank you, Ari. I really appreciate the time. I know we covered a lot of topics, but I think you presented this in a really digestible way for folks. Thank you. My pleasure. Technology has come a long way since the enactment of the Aviation and Transportation Security Act. As a society, we've largely grown accustomed to new measures aimed at collecting data to increase security, deciding to charge the powers that be with responsibility of ethical collection and analysis, rather than eschewing surveillance altogether. As COVID-19 disrupts global flows of goods and people, we must think critically about new minimally invasive data that we can collect to enable targeted interventions. 
Today's state-of-the-art temperature scans will not be enough. If we can stitch together the right data, we can put an end to conversations about closing borders or subjecting large numbers of people and goods to draconian, one-size-fits-all quarantines and travel bans. Simultaneously, the private sector needs to take a hard look at supply chain vulnerabilities and prioritize redundancies. We can't risk another 11th hour scramble to chase down PPE and other important medical equipment. We need new tools that can help businesses find and vet suppliers at home and abroad so our supply chains become more robust and flexible. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Future Proof. We'll be posting episodes on Spotify, iTunes, and SoundCloud, so watch out for our next episode. Check out Basisset's full research on customs at basisset.ventures/research. And if you want to chat about any of the themes from this episode, drop me a note at john at basisset.ventures.